Gracious God and loving Father, we bow in thy holy, thy sacred presence. We thank thee once again that we can open the word and we can gather around it. We pray for those who have assembled, Lord, here in the building and for those who watch online. We pray, O God, that thou would make this study a blessing to their soul, strengthen them in their faith. O God, that it will build them up, Lord, even in their knowledge of thee and what Christ has done for us. We leave before thee, Lord, not only this meeting, Lord, we think of our children in Sunday school and for junior and senior Bible classes. We pray, Lord, for each teacher that they would know the infilling of the Spirit, having that word in season. And we pray, Lord, that hearts will be open to receive the truth, that it will mold and fashion them even after thine image. Lord, that it would speak life to those who are dead. Lord, that thou would save even amongst our boys and girls and young people this morning. Remembering, Lord, our Bible conference, we thank the Lord for Dr. Pollock and the word last night, and we pray for thy continued presence and blessing. Lord, we lift our eyes heavenward. In these days, we look not to ourselves, nor even to one another, but we look to our God. And we pray, O God, that thou will bless us, and that thou would give us a shower in due season. Lord, hear our prayer. Bring glory to thy Son now. Cleanse me in the blood and fill me with thy spirit. For I ask this in the Saviour's precious and his holy name. Amen. Now this morning will be our final installment as we look at this feast of uh, the Passover. The first of the seven feasts mentioned by the Lord in Leviticus 23 and given to us here in detail in Exodus chapter 12. Now in part one we considered the period of the Passover, the prescription of the Passover and the particulars of the Passover. And last time in part two we thought about the procedure of the Passover as we find it there in verses 6 and 7. And we consider there the separating of the lamb, the slaying of the lamb, and the sprinkling of the blood of the lamb. Secondly, we thought about the partaking of the Passover from verses 8 to 10. Not only was the lamb to be slain, but it was also to be feasted upon. That which had become their safety had now become their sustenance. And they were to feed upon that lamb. We noticed there that it was to be taken with bitter herbs. And that drew out the sweetness of the lamb. And Christ is sweet to those to whom sin is bitter. And then we finally considered the preparation of the Passover. And that was mainly, namely, the preparation of those who ate it. They were to eat it in that state of preparedness and readiness. And that's the position that each child of God ought to adopt. We ought to be ready and prepared to do whatever the Lord commands. And that brings us to our final three points that I want to consider in relation to the Passover feast this morning, the protection of the Passover, the practice of the Passover, and the prohibitions of the Passover. So firstly, we have the protection of the Passover. And let's read again verses 12 and 13. The Lord is speaking. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, And will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And then down in verse 23 we also read similar words. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in, in unto your houses to smite you. 
The Lord here tells Moses that he would pass through the land of Egypt in verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt. And these words, they are distinct, they are different from the word that we find for Passover in the previous verse. You see, God would pass through the land in judgment, but he would pass over in mercy those who trusted in him and those who had the blood applied. It was protection from God's judgment, which was coming in the form of death, that the Passover gave. And as I mentioned in my first study, uh, Israel, they were not exempt from judgment for all of sin. And we read in other books of the Bible that they had too served the gods of Egypt. And yet God had made a covenant with them and they would find protection from judgment from death through the blood of the Lamb. In verse 12, we read that God would smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The palace of Pharaoh and the slum of the slave, they were under judgment. The homes of the rich as well as the homes of the poor, they too were all under judgment. There was no exceptions. There was only protection by doing what the Lord commanded. Now we also read here that the animals they would not be exempt from this judgment. Now, why might be the question asked? Well, it has been suggested that because animals and animal worship was a great and important part of Egyptian religion. At four of the great cities in Egypt, it suggested there were four great bulls who were kept, they were maintained, they were looked after, and they were supposed actual incarnations of deity. And it's interesting to think on this, that this is maybe where the Israelites got their thought to fashion a God for themselves at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And what was that? It was a golden calf. And so in four great cities, there was uh, four different great bulls, bulls of renown, uh, probably well looked after, uh, venerated and, uh, and worshipped. Uh, and therefore, this is a suggestion why God he executed judgment upon the animals as well. But not only those uh, four great bulls that were kept in those four major cities, but also the whole of the land of Egypt was filled with idolatry uh, and was filled with sacred animals, so-called, that were emblematic of other deities. And a sudden mortality among those sacred animals, well, that had been felt by the Egyptians as a blow against their gods to whom they belonged. And as a judgment upon the people for their sin. God said that he would execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. That's what he said there in verse number 12. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. Now, there was a sense in which each of the preceding plagues had been a judgment by God against a particular Egyptian god or goddess. And just to run through these, now I'm, I'm hoping here no one here is an expert in Egyptian hieroglyphics and you can speak Egyptian uh, fluently, but I'll give my best attempt at these Egyptian gods. There was Hapi, H-A-P-I, and that was the Egyptian god of the Nile. And what was the first plague? It was turning the water into blood. Hackett, that was the Egyptian goddess of fertility, and she had the head of a frog. And what was the second plague? It was the frogs. Geb, that was the Egyptian god of the earth, and 
he was over the dust off the earth. And what was the third plague? It was lice from the dust. Kephri. It was the Egyptian god of creation. And that god was depicted with the head of a fly. And what was the fourth plague? It was the swarms of flies. Hathor. It was the Egyptian god of love and protection. And was usually depicted with the head of a cow. And the fifth plague, it was the death of the cattle and the livestock. Isis was the Egyptian goddess of medicine and peace. And the sixth plague was that of boils and sores. Nut was the Egyptian goddess of the sky. And the seventh plague was the heel that fell from the sky. Seth was the Egyptian god of storms and disorder. And the eighth plague was the sending of the locusts to decimate any vegetation that was left. Ra was the Egyptian god of the sun. And the ninth plague, God sent darkness upon the land for three days. And finally, Pharaoh himself was considered a god. But he would be powerless to prevent Death from entering his home and taking away his firstborn. And so God truly did execute judgment upon all the gods of Egypt, the false gods, showing them to be no gods whatsoever. God does not make empty and idle threats. He would do that which he declared through Moses that he would do to Pharaoh and to Egypt in the previous chapter, chapter 11. You remember right back at the very beginning of Moses' encounter with Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Moses with scoffing contempt, in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Look what the Lord says at the end of verse 12. When he says he would execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, he makes this declaration, I am the Lord. Pharaoh would know, he would know by the final judgment that God, he is the Lord. Now in relation to those who would know protection, there is a very obvious picture of the protection and deliverance the sinner finds from death and judgment in the person of God's Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood would be the token to them. As the hymn writer put it, the blood was a sign that marked them as thine. And it would give them the assurance, the blood applied, that God would do as he had promised to do, to, to pass over them, to not allow the destroyer commit, to come in unto their house. But it's said that when he, that is God, would see the blood, not when they would see the blood, but when he would see the blood, he would pass over them. And again, this emphasizes the Godward nature of the lamb that was slain in the Passover. It was God's justice that needed to be satisfied. It was on the basis of the slain of the lamb and the shedding of the blood that that occurred. It was Godward. He said, when I see the blood, The security of the Israelite was on the basis of propitiation, which is the blood shedding, the blood shedding of a sacrifice. Death is what judgment demanded, and death had taken place in the home where the blood had been applied. 
Now in the 16th century, King Philip of Spain, he came against the people of Holland, sending the Duke of Alva to slaughter them. Now by treachery, the troops of Spain, they got into the great city of Rotterdam. And they went from house to house, slaughtering all that they could find. In one particular house, there was a large group of people who had gathered. They had barricaded themselves in, men, women, children, and babies. And they could hear the pounding of the doors and the screaming of the victims of the other people up and down the streets whom the soldiers had found. Terror had gripped their heart. And they didn't know what to do. But then suddenly there was a young man and he realized there was a goat in that premise, those premises. And he took that goat and he slew it and he allowed the blood to run out underneath the door. And as the soldiers came to that house in Rotterdam, the commanding officer, he looked at the blood and he said, Men, the work has been done. Let's be on our way. And those inside the house were spared from the sword. I believe that house is maybe actually demolished. It was called the House of a Thousand Terrors because of those who were assembled, so many. And yet they found safety because the soldier saw the blood run underneath the door. The work of appeasing God's wrath has been done by Christ. And his shed blood is a perpetual reminder That justice is satisfied by the blood of Christ. You and I, we have been secured. We find protection from death and from judgment. Now within those homes, it has to be said, I'm sure there was varying degrees of faith and assurance. There have been those and they would have confidently sat down and feasted upon the land. There would have been others and they would have been in their homes and they would have feasted there with maybe a sense of trepidation and fear and even with trembling. But it was God's view of the blood that guaranteed their safety. So it is with us as God's people. There are varying degrees of faith. That's evident from the disciples' request to the Savior when they said, Lord, increase our faith. And yet it's God's view of the blood that guarantees our security. And yet we should look upon the blood and contemplate the cross work because that is where our assurance is found, child of God. The bleeding lamb, the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do for my Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. That's where our assurance is found. Hebrews chapter 12. Talks about that full assurance. And it follows on from what? The priestly work of Christ. Spurgeon made the comment, Oh, that we would all look upon the blood of Jesus as a token. A token of divine love in giving the well-beloved to die for us. A token that justice has had its due. A token that we are perfectly secure forever. So, child of God, we ever look to the blood. It's a token to us, it's the assurance to us, and yet that assurance is based upon God's satisfaction, his view of the work of his dear son. Now, the doctrine that lies behind the protection and the deliverance from judgment 
which this Passover feast illustratively sets before us. It is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. That's the doctrine that lies behind it all. Now, throughout the ages, there have been unscriptural views of the atonement put forth. And I want to give you a few just to show that they deny the substitutionary and penal aspects of Christ's work. Firstly, there is, I'll just give you three, the moral influence theory. And this theory holds that God did not demand satisfaction for sin. Therefore, Christ's death was not for the purpose of appeasement. Well, then what, 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 what might it be for? Well, they say that it's for, it was a manifestation of God's love in suffering in and with his creatures. Not as said to soften men's heart and then to lead them to repentance. Then there is the ransom to Satan theory. And that view is, sets forth the idea that Christ He paid a ransom to Satan in order to release sinners from his claims upon them. But the clear testimony of Scripture is that the the price of redemption is not paid to Satan, but it's paid to the Father. For by our sin we were in debt to his justice. And it's been set free from that condemnation, from the obligation to fulfill that debt, having it paid in full by the blood of Christ. It's being delivered from divine wrath and condemnation. It is then that we are delivered from the power of sin and the dominion of Satan. That's when the the power is broken in the Christian's life. But the redemption price was not paid to Satan because we were in debt to God's law. The third is the example theory. And this Heresy, that heresy, it rejects the retributive justice of God that necessarily requires the punishment of sin. As defenders say, well, God's justice does not prevent him from just forgiving people as he will. And Christ really saves men by setting before them an example of true obedience and faith, obviously culminating in his death at the cross. And if only then sinners would follow his life of obedience and faith, then they would obtain or achieve eternal life. And so you can see those theories of the atonement. They deny the substitutionary aspect and the penal aspect. But in the Passover lamb, we have the substitutionary and penal aspects of the atonement Clearly presented. It's clear that the lamb was a substitute. That's so clear. If the lamb did not die, well then the firstborn would have died. It therefore took the place of the firstborn in death and in judgment. And the scripture is filled with abundant evidence that Christ died as a substitute. And that's sometimes referred to as the vicarious death of Christ. Now, in that word vicarious, you can hear that it comes from the word vicar. And a vicar is an individual who performs, who performs the function of another. See, all that Christ did in his life and his death was for others. Now, that's connected, of course, to him being a surety. But that is not be, to be confused with him as being a substitute. They are distinct. He is a surety. He is a substitute. But they are, they are not disconnected, though they are distinct. A substitute 
is one who takes the place of, and a surety is an individual who undertakes all legal obligations of another. Well, as I said, Christ is clearly presented as a substitute in Scripture. One of the clearest examples is found in Genesis 22, where the ram is caught by its horns in the thicket, and it takes the place of Isaac upon the altar. Every Old Testament sacrifice was vicarious in nature. The scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, it took the place, we could say, of the nation of Israel. And it was slaughtered, and one was let go. All those animal sacrifices, they present the truth of substitution. Of course, the classic passage in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And then we come into the New Testament, and this aspect, this truth of substitution, well, it can't be missed. It's all over the place. There's two Greek words for the word for. One means in the place of, and the other has a double meaning. A double significance. It means in the place of, and also for the benefit of. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read these words, Christ died for our sins. Now, it would be nonsensical to give the meaning of the word for, for the benefit of. Because the verse would read like this. Christ died for the benefit of our sins. It wouldn't make sense. The, clear, the idea clearly is there of substitution. Christ died in our place bearing our sins. See, the truth is, if we do not have a substitute to take our place, the sinner will bear the full wrath of God for us. There is much more could be said about the truth of substitution, but we need to move on. There is the, the other characteristic of the atonement of Christ uh, set forth by the Passover, and it's the, the penal aspect. There are some modern liberal theologians that dismiss this work of Christ in the atonement. I read an article which says it paints God as an ugly monster who pours out his vindictive wrath upon an innocent victim. A man by the name of Steve Chalk, he's infamous for using the phrase cosmic child abuse in relation to the cross work of Christ. And he suggests that those who hold to a penal substitutionary atonement, they're applying that this is what happened at the cross, that God the Father was abusing his child for no just cause or reason. But nothing could be further from the truth. You see, those liberal theologians, they fail to understand that Christ was made sin for us. He became legally responsible for the sins of his people. He therefore was not innocent. He was not innocent when he suffered on the cross. But he was accounted guilty for our sakes. Sin was imputed to him. 
though he himself remained morally pure, having no sin of his own. And that was vital. That was essential too, because only a, a spotless, a blemish-free, a sinless sacrifice could be offered, and yet he was counted as guilty. For our sins were imputed to him. Therefore, he wasn't innocent upon the tree. And it wasn't some vindictive wrath of the ugly monster of God pouring out that upon his son. The word penal, it's used in connection. It's used in connection to the punishment of offenders under a legal system. And we, when we speak of Christ's atonement being penal in its, in its nature, it means it relates to the justice of God, and that is really an aspect of the holiness of God. This is what the justice of God flows out of, His holiness. Man is subject to the law of God, as God is his creator. And we know that the law was, the law is broken, bringing guilt and incurring the penalty or the punishment. And penalty and punishment always involves suffering of some kind, of some nature. And the Passover lamb would have suffered as it was slain. And being roasted with fire, that was also typical of its sufferings. And every animal under the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it would have suffered in some degree. And that was setting forth the penal aspect of Christ's atonement. For he must suffer. And Christ was clear in the point that he must suffer. That he had to suffer. Because that was the punishment, the penalty of sin. There must be suffering in his atonement. He said to his disciples in Luke 9, 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and raised the third day. This is because the Lord Jesus knew he would be punished, that he was going to pay the penalty for sin. And that involved suffering, as all penalties and punishments do. Suffering of body, suffering of soul. And the suffering and the evidence that he would and he did suffer, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And the truth is, he suffered. He suffered in our stead. He took what you and I deserved. And this means because suffering was involved and there is this penal aspect of his atonement. It means calamity or tragedy cannot explain the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Nor can we look at the cross in terms of chastisement because being the son of God, he was perfect in his character, in his being, in his nature. Rather, Christ's suffering at the cross it was, in essence, punishment. It was the exacting of God's retributive justice upon the one who stood as the bearer of his people's sin. That's what happened at the tree. And that's what we read off in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also have once suffered for sins, the just 
for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh. There's the cross. That's the epitome of his sufferings. That's where he once suffered for sin. But being quickened by the Spirit. To suggest that the penal aspect of the atonement and those who hold to it are advocating for cosmic child abuse and paint God as some ugly, vindictive monster. It's a misrepresentation and it's a failure to understand the holiness of God. That's what it's a failure. We cannot forget that the God who poured out his wrath upon his Son is the same God who said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How could the cross then be abuse? God loved his Son, one in whom he was well pleased. The very fact that God would send his Son to suffer for sin, it highlights for us the heinousness of sin, but also it magnifies the love of God for sinners. How does that paint a picture of a holy, vindictive monster? Doesn't. Just as the Israelite was protected from the coming judgment by the blood of the Lamb, so the only way for a sinner to be protected from the coming judgment, the threatenings of a broken law, is sheltering neath the blood of Christ. In the East Indies, there is a tree which is a non-conductor of lightning. When the dreadful thunderstorms burst in those tropical regions, the lightnings, well, they strike the surrounding trees, but they never, they never touch this tree, which is a non-conductor. Now, some time before the natives discovered this peculiar property of this tree, but once it was ascertained, they invariably gathered their flocks and their families neath that tree when they saw the storm clouds gathering. No matter how loud the thunder crack, no matter how bright the lightning flashes, they were safe under its far-spreading limbs. So too, from the threatenings of God's broken law, penitence, they find safety in the outstretched arms of the cross of Calvary. That's where protection is found. He bore what was our due. Secondly, this morning, and I'm going to go through these a little quicker so we can get to prayer for a Bible conference. The practice of the Passover. Let's look at verse 14. Let's read it together. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And then go down to verses 24 to 27. We'll read those verses. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass when ye become, into, when ye become to the land which the Lord will give you according as he hath promised that ye shall keep this service and it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? 
that ye shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. Now it's obvious that this was to be a commemorative feast. It was to be practiced to bring to their remembrance those things that the Lord had done for his people, but also to stir up inquiries of the generations to come in order that they might be instructed in things of God. It was a feast that not only pointed backward to their deliverance as a nation, but it also pointed forward in its typology to their deliverance as sinners. God said that throughout their generations as Jews, they were to remember the Passover. Read that many times. Verse 24, it says, And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. Now, I do not have time to go into it this morning, but when you, and if you were to, to study the use of the words forever in the Old Testament, it does not necessarily mean eternally or as long as time shall last. But it does mean at times throughout that dispensation of time. In other words, however long that particular thing is appointed to be observed, then they were forever during that period of time to observe it. That's what that means. You might think, well, are we doing something here if we're not keeping this forever? But if you study out these words forever, it doesn't, doesn't always mean eternally or uh, until the end of time. It means forever without that, throughout that appointed period and season. And just as the Jews observed the Passover throughout their generations, until the Lamb of God came the first time, so we are to observe the Lord's Supper in commemoration of Christ our Passover, who has sacrificed for us until he comes the second time. You see, the Lord's Supper was instituted by the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed when they were having a Passover meal. Now that is evident from the accounts that we find in the gospel. If you want to turn to Matthew 26, there's many say, well, this wasn't really a Passover meal. This was just a meal they were having. But the evidence is abundant in the New Testament that this was a Passover meal. Matthew 26, in the verses 18 and 19, we read these words. The Lord is speaking to his disciples, and he says to them, Go into the city to such a man and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. And then in Luke 22, in the verse 15, when they had gathered in their upper room, he says to them with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And we read about them dipping a morsel into a dish. You know the account there, the one who dips into the dish. Well, that's thought to be the unleavened bread being dipped into the bitter herbs, which was eaten in the cedar meal. And it is important to note that the Lord's Supper is not the Passover, and the Passover was not the Lord's Supper, but one prefigured the other. One was the type of the other, which is the antitype. One was the shadow and the other was the reality. Because Christ is the fulfillment 
of all that was foreshadowed in the Passover lamb. It is his blood that is the blood of the everlasting covenant, of the new covenant. He's the one who averts the wrath of God for those who place their trust in him. And just as the Passover was observed on the eve of Israel's redemptive exodus out of Egyptian bondage, so the Lord's Supper was first observed on the eve of the greater new covenant act of redemption, which would deliver sinners from the bondage of their sin. And the Lord Jesus used the one to to transition his disciples from the old observance to the new observance. So they're two different ordinances from two different dispensations of time, but we have to say they are linked. They are linked. One was the shadow and the other's the substance. It's the reality because Christ had come to die. The Passover feast was to be practiced, as we read here in Exodus chapter 12, so that Israel would remember and that Israel would proclaim to their children, to others, their redemption from Egypt. And so the Lord's Supper is to be observed for the same two reasons. For a remembrance and for a proclamation. You read that in Paul's words in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's the purpose of keeping the Lord's Supper. He says there in verse 22, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do what? Why? In remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is a New Testament in my blood, this do, as oft as ye drink it, why? In remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show or proclaim, declare the Lord's death till he come. Same reason why we are now to observe the Lord's Supper for a remembrance and for a proclamation. Both feasts, they have a backward and a forward look. The Passover, they look back to the event of the Exodus and they looked forward in type. The Lord's Supper, it looks back to the event of the cross which delivered us from the kingdom of darkness, but it also looks forward because it is to be observed until he comes. Now, unfortunately, throughout biblical history, we read of times when the practice of the Passover was not kept by Israel. Times when she departed from her God, and then she came under the chastening rod of God because of that. But when the people repented and the Lord intervened, It's interesting to note that the Passover and the sacrifices, those Old Testament ordinances, they were observed once again with joy. See, in our day, a sign of departure, a sign of coldness, is a failure to attend to or a neglect of the ordinances that the Lord has instituted for his church. That's the same. It's the same in Israel's day in the old dispensation. It's the same in our day. And that's why we must be careful 
to attend to the practice of observing the Lord's table. Because it draws us closer to Christ. It keeps us in fellowship with him. We receive grace from him, from that ordinance. We feast upon him. It gives us sustenance and strength in our Christian walk. And may it also give us opportunity to proclaim to others, to the generation, to our children who ask us why. Why do you keep the Lord's Supper? So thirdly, this morning, you thought about the protection of the Passover and the practice of the Passover. Thirdly, this morning, the prohibition of the Passover. And time's definitely gone, but we have prohibitions laid out in verses 43 to 49, uh, connected with the Passover meal and feast. Now, I don't have time to read those verses, but just to mention a few brief points that those prohibitions teach us, just to, to bring them out. In verses 43 to 40, 49, we find there that no uncircumcised could eat of the Passover meal. And it's only those who have had the spiritual circumcision of the heart who can feast upon Christ. A foreigner and a hired servant, they were not allowed to eat, neither could a stranger. And this suggests the fencing of the table. Something that the Scottish Presbyterians were known for. No one save should be coming forward to the Lord's table. It's something that the Lord Jesus himself did. For Judas left the upper room before the Lord's Supper was instituted. Those who have not rested on Christ for salvation have no right to come to the table of the Lord. However, we have to say in those verses, there was provision for the stranger to partake of the feast if they were circumcised. And that was a pointer to the fact that Christ is both the Savior of the Jew and the Gentile. So there is a number of prohibitions there. And as I said, I don't have time to go into them any more detail. I want to end this study on the feast of the Passover uh, there this morning. But clearly we have shadows of the Savior in this feast, as we have considered the period, prescription, the particulars, the procedure, the partaking, the preparation, the protection, the practice, and the prohibitions of the Passover, how thankful we ought to be that our eyes have been opened to behold the one whom our souls love. You see, for many of the Jews to whom these feasts were given, we read in Romans chapter 11 verses 9 and 10. Let their table be a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. It's only by God's grace we can see these things, brothers and sisters. It's obvious to us. You might think, well, how can they not see it? How can they not see Christ in those sacrifices, him to be their Messiah. Well, it's only God. There is judicial blindness given to them. Let, let their eyes be darkened. Mercy has been given to us. He has opened our eyes that we might behold shadows of the Savior in this feast of the Passover. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. May the Lord bless the study 
upon this feast to all our hearts. Let's bow in prayer and ask the Lord to bless his word. Father in heaven, we thank the Lord for, uh, Lord, what we can dig out of this feast. We thank the Lord for all the instruction and all the views and glimpses that we have had of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank the Lord for his uh, suffering as our substitute. Rejoice, O God, that thou in great love sent him to die in our stead. And we rejoice in this, Father. Lord, I pray that you'll give us correct and right views of the cross. And may that warm our souls and inflame our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to attend to the means of grace. You know how fickle at times we are, how prone to forget. But thou hast given us the Lord's table as a remembrance of what Christ has done. And to also declare and proclaim to others of what he means to us. Lord, we pray for others who as yet cannot feast upon Christ. We pray, Lord, you'll perform spiritual surgery upon their heart. Take away that heart of stone. Give them the heart of flesh. Do it in our Bible conference. Bless us, Lord, as we get to prayer for a few moments and then into morning worship. May our hearts be blessed again around the word. Hear our prayer. We ask this all in the Savior's name. Amen.